Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. Early on in her career, someone said to her, you might not be someone who fits the mold because you are the mold. That moment was so impactful for her because it made her realize that she could create a place for herself in the Broadway community, a world she had loved from the moment she understood what Broadway was. And she has been impactful and creating a legacy for herself in the American theater that will last forever because of her passion, enthusiasm, and her incredible sense of artistic integrity. Welcome Jennifer Tepper to the podcast. A-okay. A-okay. Hey everyone, my guest today is Jennifer Ashley Tepper, the author of The Untold Stories of Broadway, a multi-volume series that examines the legendary Broadway theaters, both those that are still standing and those that are gone. She is also a theater producer and has been part of the creative team for Broadway shows including The Parisian Woman, Godspell, and Macbeth. She is the curator for the well-known cabaret space in New York City known as Feinstein slash 54 Below, where the most well-known Broadway stars come and perform in an intimate space, giving musical theater lovers an up-close and personal performance with the most accomplished Broadway performers of our time. She does this and so much more, and I am thrilled to welcome someone who has become such an integral part of the Broadway community. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I'm such a huge fan of yours. It's so exciting to be chatting with you. It is quite remarkable to me the collection now of books that you have written that honor and celebrate the world that is the Broadway that we all know and love so much. And you are I hate when it's audio because I want my listeners to understand how young and beautiful you are, (laughs) that all of this has come out of your brain. um, And you are also such an accomplished author at such a young point in your life is 
extraordinary. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I've just gotten into writing volume four, and I've been looking back at interviews. Of course, like you do. <laughs> well, so the books, the Untold Stories of Broadway, uh, there'll be six books total when I'm done. So there's three now. There's three to go. And a lot of the interviews I've done will appear in later books, just because I'm going one theater, you know, theater at a time. And so there's interviews I did about the Imperial in 2013 that'll appear in the next volume because I'm finally doing the Imperial. So I'm reading these interviews I did when I was 26, being like, I've gotten better at asking that question. <laughs> you right, know what I mean? Right. Uh, but I, I, you know, I'm. Thank you. It's really nice to have started at a young age and, like, you know, seen like I've seen myself grow in the past couple of years. I feel like. Well, the idea is such an incredible concept. How did it even come to you, like, to write these these books? I worked on the Broadway musical title of show, which was at the Lyceum, and I had always been obsessed with the Broadway theaters themselves. Uh, since I grew up in Florida, when I would be learning about shows and teaching myself, I really loved learning. Like, oh, Pippin was at the Imperial. I'm really obsessed with the Imperial today for some reason. Uh, and, you know, I love learning, like, this show was there, this show was there. It helped me kind of realize what Broadway was, even though I wasn't here in person. Okay. Uh, and then when I was working on title of show at the Lyceum, I spent so much time exploring the Lyceum, which is fascinating theater with trapdoors and secret hallways. And, you know, it's the oldest continually operating theater on Broadway. So it has been a Broadway house since 1903. There was just all this fascinating stuff that I learned about it. And that made me go, oh my gosh, I wish there was like a book that took you theater by theater, but told you people's personal stories and memories. I'm going to do that someday. I kind of cataloged the idea away. And then a couple years later, um, I met these publishers who saw a concert that I wrote uh, called If It Only Even Runs a Minute. And they said, you know, do you want to pitch us a book? And I thought, okay, I have this idea for a book. I assumed I'd be doing it in 20 years when I had a bit more experience, but maybe I could do it now. Uh, And we kind of just started. So where did you get the confidence to write? Were you a great writer when you were growing up? Did you always write? Like, where does this come from? That's a great question. You know, I have a very supportive family. No one's in the arts or anything, but they all loved theater. Uh, But I think it just came from loving reading about theater myself. And again, because I grew up in Florida, like so many of us who grow up elsewhere but dream of being in New York, my gateway drug to, like, learning about theater was liner notes and books. I was very obsessed with Not Since Carrie by Ken Mandelbaum uh, and Everything Was Possible by Ted Chapin. Those are, like, my two big theater history like gateway books that like you know, burst my mind open. Like if your home was on fire and you had to run out, <laughs> you would have grabbed those two books. I would have definitely then... <laughs> grabbed them and like a couple of cast recordings. Yeah. Um, and I think just reading about theater myself made me feel, oh, I don't want to be a critic, but I want to write about theater um, and celebrate it. And so I think the confidence just came from, I know so much about this that I feel like I can do it. So was architecture something you were also interested in? What's really interesting, I've become more and more interested in architecture over the years, and I've certainly studied it in reference to making sure I'm writing about the books accurately. Um, But it wasn't literal architecture that fascinated me as much as, you know, oh, there's this uh, hallway between these two theaters that exists because this builder wanted to be able to travel between his shows. And now in, you know, 2017, this is how it's used on Broadway. And those kinds of quirks of the theaters that I feel like lend themselves to, um, you know, how the community functions and how shows go. So it was a lot about, oh, this theater is large, and that's why it gets this kind of show, and less about, oh, this is a neoclassical mural (laughs) kind of thing, even though that's become more and more interesting to me over the years. So when you first started out, who was your very first interview with? 
My very first interview was with Ann L. Nathan. I love Ann. She was in Once on Broadway. Yes, and, and, and Thoroughly Modern Millie uh, and Assassins and so many shows. And it was at the Cafe Edison, the old Cafe Edison. Tell my listeners, because not everyone is as familiar with the Edison as a hotel, as a cafe, in terms of what it meant to the community. Totally. Um, and the what books, the Edison um, is. Yeah, the books I've really tried to kind of celebrate, not just the Broadway theaters, but also Sardis and like the Cafe Edison and other hangouts. Iconic. Iconic Broadway hangouts. Totally. Those that are still there and those that are no longer there because they're part of what the theater is. And the Edison was there for decades. It was run by um, a much older couple who had, you know, come over, escaped you know, violence in Europe and opened this cafe that then nurtured the Broadway community. And they were well known for like blintzes and uh, chicken soup. And it's recently been taken over and turned into a place called Friedman's, which actually, you know, architecturally, it looks similar and it's kept a lot of the charm. Um, And I was really glad that it had reopened. The charm. It it has. It's a pretty simple place. It's different. But, you know, that's been a thing as I've you know, the book, people get really sad about things that are no longer. And some people are like, oh, my God, I love this new place. Like, there'll be a kid that comes off the bus tomorrow that's like, Friedman's, that's a cool place. And so, you know, like, I've always loved the Marriott Marquis. And some people who worked on Broadway for decades are like, that's the theater they built when they knocked down the theater. So, you know, there's it grows and there's pros and cons. So you started with Anne. And what was the idea to talk about that specific theater It's interesting. When I started, I obviously knew less what I was doing. So with her, it was just kind of like a straight up interview about, you know, whatever I wanted to ask her about, about the shows she'd done. And then as I went on, I started realizing, okay, I want to ask people specific questions regarding projects they've done in a certain theater. So now I'm talking to Anne and this part of our interview is going to be what I imagine being in the Jacobs chapter about once. And so it kind of evolved from there. And as I interviewed people who were producers or stagehands or ushers, I kind of figured out the best questions to ask people of each profession um, in order to get answers that would kind of reveal things about their jobs and also about the theaters and shows. So another thing that I read was that in the Music Box Theater, where dear Evan Hansen is playing, where your dear friend Will Rowland appears nightly as Jared Kleiman, and he's a little connective person in our six degrees of each other, there's a speakeasy? There is. The Music Box is so fascinating. And uh, the theater was built by Irving Berlin for his Music Box reviews. And at some point, um, you know, during Prohibition, Irving Berlin went, okay, well, I'm going to build a secret bar into my office so that my friends can, you know, come here and, and have some drinks. And so in what is now the house manager's office, which is like on the second floor, you open this door that looks like it kind of doesn't even look like a closet. It just looks like a trap door from a movie that is actually just, you know, a wall but becomes a door. Um, And you go in and there's like this little bar with like an ice box and it's kind of hidden away. And a lot of the theaters have weird secrets like that that are so fascinating. Like what are some other things that you can think of that you sort of learned about like that? You know, one of the thing that endlessly fascinates me, the Belasco has a lot that is just like because David Belasco was so eccentric as a producer. Um, read more up on him. You'll be fascinated. And he built things like uh, his Broadway theater that he built before the Belasco. Harry Houdini played there a lot with a giant elephant in his act. And so when he built the Belasco, he thought, OK, well, if Harry Houdini comes and plays here, we're going to have to have an elephant trapdoor. So he built this giant level with like an elephant elevator that now is like, you know, used for ping pong tables and like couches and it's kind of a green room, but it's like huge. And actually I was talking to someone recently, you could kind of do a show in that space that was like the elephant trapdoor room. So there's just these weird quirks that obviously have existed for a hundred years because of what someone did decades ago. There's this other thing. I mean, I'm just going to pepper you with questions. (laughs) I'm going to pepper tepper with questions (laughs) because 
every single page and every chapter of your books are just filled with the most remarkable stories. Like, you can't make this stuff up. Totally. (laughs) I mean, one of them is that, I think it was, forgive me, was it a stage door person or house manager that someone went into labor? Oh my gosh, this is a crazy story. Jerry Adler is one of my favorite people I've interviewed. He's the third oldest working actor in Actors' Equity. Uh, and he has like so many Broadway credits, a fascinating career. And during My Fair Lady, he was a okay. stage manager on the original My Fair Lady. So that's Lady. how he started before he was even acting. Yes. Okay. Um, he, you know, he's produced, acted, stage managed, interesting career. Uh, and during My Fair Lady, a woman went into labor in a box seat. And he helped the woman. The woman was like, it was too late to go to the hospital. And he apparently cut the umbilical cord with a tie clip, which you had, you know, in the 50s. Uh, He had the most fascinating stories. You know, he is in the Broadhurst chapter um, alone. It was that story. He talks about how um, during the House of Un-American Activities, you know. McCarthy era. Yeah. He they were, you know examining Zero Mostel's activities. So he would sneak Zero Mostel out of the theater in, like, different costumes. Um, He has all kinds of fascinating stories that are very integrated with, like, history. Um, He also brought My Fair Lady to Russia, and then after, like, a USSR incident, they were sent home because, you know, My Fair Lady couldn't tour Russia anymore. So it just, it's been interesting to examine the ways that the Broadway stories... That very subversive show, My Fair Lady. (laughs) Well, they just didn't want Americans, you know, there anymore, I guess. But um, there's stuff that it's so integral to, like, the women's movement or, you you know, what was going on politically or, you know, racism. There's all of these interesting social and political topics that come up just having to do with Broadway. And we don't realize, you know, they're very integral. Well, speaking of My Fair Lady, you wrote another story. I'm thinking of Julie Andrews, who was nominated for Tony for... Uh, Victor Victoria, yes. And tell... I'm sorry, I'm going to just keep... (laughs) So the story, as I understand it, is that she, beautiful woman that she was, was like, you know what? I'm part of an ensemble Mm -hmm. and an entire team, and it is not just I who makes this happen, so I do not accept my nomination. Is that yes. is this apocryphal or is this true? No, it's so true. One of my favorite interviews from my first book was with Ray Concepcion, who's the uh, doorman at the Marquee, and he had been there since the Marquee opened. Like, he's been there for decades, and he had extraordinary stories, and he's the one who told me that about how, uh, you know, Julie, as you said, went, my whole cast is a team, I'm going to turn down my nomination. Um, and when I was interviewing him, he told me this, and then he showed me, there's like a giant Tony medallion kind of like made out of uh, plaster that lives at the marquee that the cast gave to her and said, you know, this is your Tony. And those kinds of things, like, it was just sitting there as we were, like, talking for the interview. And it's such an interesting part of the theater's history. That is, but just imagine that. Like, imagine someone turning down their nomination It's sort of, it's unprecedented, I would imagine. Totally. I mean, weirdly, this was very different, but the reason that William Daniels turned down his nomination for 1776 originally, um, because in those days, if you were above the title, you were lead, and if you were below the title, you were featured. And he played John Adams, but he was below the title because of his level of fame. And he said, this is not appropriate. I'm not a featured actor. Turn it down. And then the Tony Awards changed the rules. (laughs) So that was a little bit different. But um, Yeah. yeah, there's just these interesting stories. And I learned so much about other people in shows just from, you know, I didn't interview Julie Andrews, but hearing about someone like that who's such a leader of the cast, I've heard a lot of stories about, like, wonderful, um, you know, show leaders. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And and how fascinating that in sort of starting out with this idea of, like, I'm going to feature these theaters and sort of the way these buildings house these stories and these lives and and also the fact that you are exactly as you said, preserving the history of things that are no longer. It's really hard. I hate change. <laughs> I really, in general, I I'm it. not good with transitions. I'm not 
great with change and and the idea that um, in some ways you're helping us let go of the past and shepherd in the new without losing our respect and love for what came before. And where are we right now? Where is Broadway right now? Well, I think what's so interesting about what you just said, like I've always been obsessed with new musicals too and with what's going on now and with the history. And that's kind of been the goal is like to knit it all together. And so someone who, you know, is at the music box can go, oh, I read, you know, this story and or, you know, I heard this thing about someone who was in my dressing room 50 years ago. And it kind of makes you realize you're part of that continuum. Um, And I do think that where we are now obviously is such, you know, Broadway is in a very healthy and exciting place. But I do, you know, in terms of the history, I think people do have more respect for it than they did. I think that, like, the younger generations now, part of it is, like, YouTube and the internet and um, the kind of way that geek geekdom has been made cool by a lot of our industry's leaders. Um, and I think that when, as a kid, like, all these people, you know, sitting in Ohio who are dreaming of Broadway can go on YouTube and watch the Tony Awards from the 80s, like, that lends a respect to the history. Um, and I think the access that the internet's given has been, like, a really positive thing. You know, it's so funny as you sit here, I think about, like, so how has this been meaningful for me. And I'm remembering I did a play on Broadway many years ago called The Last Night of Ballyhoo. And it was in this beautiful little gem of a theater, the Helen Hayes. Mm -hmm. And I was told that Joan Rivers had had my dressing room for a previous play that she had done there. And that also she had been responsible for a sort of remodeling that had happened in the downstairs kind of hang. There's no green room at the Helen Hayes. It's so tiny. There's that little fireplace. Do you know what I've I'm learned talking some, about? Yes. I've learned so some tell me, weird and fascinating yes. things about this recently. Did tell you, you did that play with Jessica Heck, yeah. right? Well, no, I took over. Oh, amazing. Yes. That makes sense. Um, I interviewed her recently. Yeah. And also, I mean, this podcast, like people are listening right now and they're getting this access. So what you do is so cool in that way, um, giving people more information. Uh, I've learned about the Helen Hayes. I went on a tour with Chris Burney, who's um, from Second Stage, when they were starting the renovation of the Helen Hayes. And I learned that when the Helen Hayes was built, the dressing rooms were plentiful and they were beautiful and they were above the theater. And when the theater, the Helen Hayes was turned into like a TV studio, um, they took those and they rented them out as office space. And they took what was the lobby of the theater and they divided it up into dressing rooms, which is why there's like a fireplace in the middle of the dressing rooms and why, you know, they're not, they weren't the nicest dressing rooms on Broadway, everyone, you know, was like, you could hear people in the next dressing room. Yeah. There were makeshift walls. Yes. And now Second Stage has turned it back into how it used to be. So there'll be really nice dressing rooms upstairs. Really? And there'll be a lobby again. Now. Yeah. Now they do it. <laughs> I mean, luckily I had a cast that I loved and it was fine hearing them all the time, but it wasn't the most private of preparations as you'd be getting ready for your thing. So what is the story about Barbara Streisand after her final performance of Funny Girl? that is featured in your book. Oh my gosh, you know, it's the Larry Fuller story. Yeah. Larry Fuller talks about, um, Larry Fuller's an incredible choreographer historically. He snuck Michael Bennett into the theater. Him and Michael Bennett were close friends um, to see Barbara perform in the show, which that, it's really interesting hearing about these legends in the early years. I always ask people what their first Broadway show was and you kind of get this sense of like, oh, like this person second acted a show. Like I saw that person in a Broadway show. But it was, you know, the Barbara Streisand funny girl stories are very exciting. I remember uh, hearing a lot about her dressing room during Funny Girl when I was writing the book. And like what would happen in it? 
Um, just that, you know, I went backstage to visit Alex Brightman when he was doing School of Rock, and he and Sierra Bogus, I guess, each have part of it, like the Barbara Streisand infamous dressing room, which, you know, she painted it, and there was like a very fancy bathtub, and you you know, you just hear about these she little details. She moved in. And then later, like, you know, I interviewed John McMartin, the great late John McMartin, about Follies at that theater, and he talked about how, like, some of the remnants of her dressing room were still there. So, you know, that's existed for all those years, and that's kind of cool to see in person. I don't know if everybody knows that when particularly an above the title person moves into a theater, often there's a hope that it's going to have a very long run. Sometimes there are limited runs, but often the hope is that it will go for as long as they are contracted to do the part. Can you explain to people what happens? Like, there's a redecorating that goes on. Um, There are designers involved (laughs) sometimes. What are some of the most elaborate production design things that you've noticed of certain stars in theaters. Sure. Well, I just was reading about how, I guess, Casey Levy and Patty Murin, like, there was an article talking about the person who's designing their frozen dressing rooms, and um, it's become a, a bigger and bigger thing over the years. I actually, I interviewed um, Estelle Parsons for my book yesterday, and she was talking about how um, people used to have, actually, I've heard this a few times, I, John Lee Beatty said this, how uh, people used to have dressing room maids, like, not assistants, but, like, decades and decades ago, you would literally have someone who would be called a maid in the theater. I mean, these traditions of of what happens in dressing rooms blow my mind sometimes. Um, elaborate dressing rooms, there's one at the Lunt Fontan that's very well known, which, you know, I remember like when Sherry Renee Scott was there doing Little Mermaid, it was very elaborately decorated. Um, and then there's some theaters, what I find really interesting, that don't really have star dressing rooms. At the booth, what was the star dressing room is now one Schubert Alley, that store. So I guess in the 70s, when Broadway merchandise was becoming more popular, they said, okay, no more star dressing room at the booth. We're we turning need, into we need merch. So, you know, and of course, plenty of big stars play the booth, like, where do they go? They probably go in a little closet-sized room. Um, And then they put, like, funny masks on, and they, like, are selling things during internment. Like, okay, you can have the dressing room, but people will be coming in to buy posters and (laughs) T-shirts. I've told this before, but, you know, part of what happens, and, and people may or may not know this, that if there isn't a particular star dressing room, then what they might do is have the biggest names or the biggest parts on the first floor. You know, many of these dressing rooms are up six flights of stairs. It's kind of insane if you're trying to go. I mean, if if you have a Fitbit, you're very pleased with yourself if you're a sixth floor person. So when I was cast in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, the the considered leads of that play were sort of Lucy and Charlie. Anthony Rapp was Charlie. B.D. Wong had already been a a Tony-winning Actor, so he had he and Anthony were on the first floor, and then I and and Roger Bart were on the second floor, and then um, Stanley Wayne Mathis and Kristen Chenoweth were above us. That was sort of the way that was um, designed, and clearly during the course of that play, Kristen. Uh, in her breakout performance as Sally, was becoming more and more known, beloved, and sought after. Mm -hmm. And I have told this that I would be standing there literally as one unbelievably, you know, famous person after another would be coming (laughs) up the stairs to go see her. I would basically invite them in to rest for a moment. Like, would you like a little lemonade, Mike Nichols? (laughs) And those are all the sort of little things that happen behind the scenes in the world that people don't really understand. You know, they're lovingly and excitedly waiting by the stage door. But there's so much in the politics of what goes on in terms of where people live in the theater 
when they're not on totally. stage. I've become more and more fascinated with The Ambassador lately, which is where Charlie Brown was. Because yeah. it's it's a little bit of a redheaded stepchild, just like the court, where like it has such fascinating history, but a lot of people are like, oh, The Ambassador. And I always am excited to learn more about the dressing rooms or anything about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the most exciting thing about the dressing rooms is when people kind of discover or tell me who sh- they shared them with years ago. Like, yeah. I remember like Lin-Manuel Miranda told me about how when Joel Gray came to In the Heights and talking to him about, you know, that theater and the dressing rooms and those kinds of stories, I think, you know, just make people have more respect for the backstage. I also, I get so obsessed with the past doors. Like, that's something where the audience doesn't realize that they're like, you know, 10 inches away from the backstage. Totally. If you're in the front of the theater, if you're in the orchestra near the pit or near the lip of the stage, to the right and left of the stage are these two doors. And if you're rehearsing, when you're in the middle of rehearsing a Broadway play, that is how you get in and out from the backstage area into the theater if you want to watch or get notes. And and so what is really frustrating, like on a night where you are going backstage to see your friend and you know like you actually <laughs> could go right there and instead you're going outside and getting through the crowds, it is a really amazing thing. So what were some of the things that have stayed with you you know, some of your favorite stories. I've kind of asked you about some of mine that I read, <laughs> but what are some of your favorite moments? You know, right now, what's been, I've been, since I've been working on book four, which now has like eight new theaters in it, I've been so obsessed with some of the stories that I have been working on for that, which um, technically I haven't announced which theaters are in the next book yet, but if you're listening, you might yeah. find out some secrets. Great. Um, so Little known facts. I, oh my God, I uh, Donna Murphy told me this big story about the Imperial, um, where she actually booked their Playing Our Song, which played there while she was in college at NYU, uh, and I went to NYU, and the way she tells the story, she talks about being in her dorm room at Brittany Hall when she got the call that she got like a Broadway job as like a 19-year-old, and like I hung out in that dorm all the time, and so that kind of blew my mind just to hear, you know, she was in the dorm. It's so cool. Uh, And then she ended up uh, doing Drood there. Um, And so just like she gave this whole story of like all of her memories of both of those shows at the theater that um, just blew my mind. And I kind of couldn't stop talking about it for a while. She actually started in Drood understudying some roles. uh, And in the ensemble, she left to be a standby in Rags. And then when she heard that Betty Buckley was leaving Drood, she thought, I guess, you know, I want to go audition for the lead, but I don't know if they'll see me. And they're looking for someone famous. And she talks about how she walked into the audition and they didn't recognize her because she had like done herself up and she, you know, got the job because obviously she's so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but just her whole trajectory, she talks about like returning to the Imperial and there's an usher she was friends with that was still there who's still there to this day. Uh, just like all those beautiful things about working in the same theater over many years and how Lu- Lucille Ball, like, you know, Lucy Arnaz was in the show. So Lucille Ball would watch from backstage on a stool um, and just about, you know, what it was like to work on Broadway in the 70s and 80s, like at that time. So, just like a lot of cool stories that have suddenly been uh, back in my mind because of that. Studio 54 is also in my next book. So um, I just was editing a ton of Sunday in the Park with George revival stories. And those were very beautiful to me. Um, there's one Chris Catelli choreographer, great choreographer, talks about... Well, he's represented um, right now with SpongeBob SquarePants, yes, which, which is unbelievable. His work is so good on that. Yeah. Um, and he talks about, you know, that's been a really interesting thing to me. Uh 
people of certain professions kind of explaining what they do in a way that anyone could understand. Like, I feel like I've gotten a better grasp on sound design from interviewing sound designers and hearing someone who's like a brilliant choreographer who could speak in very technical terms say, okay, well, there's this one little moment of the show where, you know, Dot, who's a character obviously in Sunday in the Park, George, her wrist hurts from painting her face with makeup and George's wrist hurts from painting and they both touch their wrists at the same time and you might never notice it or you might subconsciously be like, oh, they're both experiencing the same physical sensation. But he described how he choreographed uh, that moment and then other similar ones in a way that you go, oh, even if I am reading this as a you know reader and I'm not a good dancer and don't understand choreography, I understand the impact that this artist makes. Right. And so those stories really always are so interesting to me. Well, what I love about your books is that, you know, when you grow up, you unless you grow up in in the in the world of of musical theater and Broadway, you feel like either you're going to get to be in the show or you're going to get to watch a show. Mm-hmm. And the idea that there are eight million jobs that you can do in and around musical theater or straight plays, whatever your passion is, but that the theater has a million opportunities and that if you love it, you can find your place in it, mm-hmm. even if it turns out you don't have the chops to actually do it eight eight shows a week. Um, And even if you do, it just can't happen for everyone. The numbers just aren't in your favor. That's Mm -hmm. just the reality of it. So not to follow, not to not follow your dream, whatever it is, but I think it's such an important um, collection of works because it also celebrates all the aspects um, and all the people that go into making the show. Totally. Behind the scenes and, and on the scenes. Yeah. Like, I think when we're all falling in love with theater, when we're like, tweens or teens and you can't really be 16 years old and be like I'm going to be an agent on the school play or I'm going to be the house manager on the school play and you kind of can't even major in a lot of those things so I think that there's so many people I've interviewed who I'm like oh my god like Tim Petalino, who's the house manager at the Rogers, is like the king of the Rogers, Richard Rogers Theater. And like when Obama comes to see Hamilton, that's who you talk to. You talk to Tim. And he's one of the most fascinating interviews I did. Um, but how would you know that you wanted to do that when you were growing up right. until you kind of got here and started doing it? And that's been really cool to explore, um, to talk to box office treasurers and, you know, just people that you're like, that's a fascinating job. You're so great at it. How did that happen? And it's you have to be here and learn about theater hands on in order to do a lot of those jobs. I wanted to talk a little bit about what it was for you from a very young age that made you fall in love with theater, which I thank God you did, because now you get to share all of that passion mm-hmm. and wisdom with all of us through your books and your producing and all of that. So what what do you think it was for you? Um, I was thinking about this on the way here because, you know, theater camp was a huge thing for me. Um, I got to go to theater camp in Florida. This is just JCC theater camp. And um, one of the first times I remember being obsessed with the Tony Awards was with one of my good friends from camp, Kyla. And it was the 99 Tony Awards, which you were on. Yeah. And we just rewound it and we watched, you know, Charlie Brown and Civil War and Parade and um the Tony Awards were a huge gateway drug, as was theater camp and the way those two things came together. Um, and also, you know, in high school, I went to a public school that had a really good theater department. Um, and even when I was in middle school, like I would go see the high school shows and learn who the people were and be obsessed with them. So um, I think that Florida, uh, it really does nurture this kind of like theater kid mentality. Like Florida high school thespian competition is the largest in the nation because there's all these snowbirds that are going to see theaters. So there's tours that come there for the snowbirds sure. and kids get to see them. Um, so Florida was a great place to grow up for that reason. There was like a lot of local um, and professional theater going on. And then you decided I'm coming to New York. Yes. And I'm going to <laughs> NYU or or I'm not going. 
right? Yeah, that is totally. <laughs> um, I was very lucky in that my parents supported that, but I literally said, you know, I'm going to NYU and I won't go anywhere else. And if I don't get in, I'm gonna like chain myself to my bedroom until I get in. Uh, I was kind of New Yorker bust, and I knew that I wanted like New York to be my classroom um, as well as go to NYU. And you were a theater major. I was at Tisch for dramatic writing, um, which was because I was like, I love theater and I love writing, and I know I don't want to perform. Um, but the weird thing was that dramatic writing is like for playwrights and screenwriters, and I didn't really want to do that either. Um, but it ended up being a really good place for me because I, you know, got to take a lot of classes that were outside of that and had a lot of freedom in what I did. Um, I ended up like adapting theater-related stuff for my screenwriting class and and things of that sort. You have producing credits. You have now taken over, if you can talk a little bit about um, Feinstein's slash 54 Below, what that is. You are doing a lot. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so what was your first job in the in the theater when you got out of school? Or maybe it was during school. Totally. I had a lot of good internships while I was at NYU. And uh, part of that was just me going, okay, I need to like create my own education. And I interned at the York Theater. I interned at the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. Um, I interned at a lot of really great places. And um, my senior year of college, I interned with the writers of Title of Show, Jeff Bowen and Hunter Bell, which was because um, I felt like as a dramatic writing major, I wasn't getting to work a lot with musical theater. And so I put together this like musical theater concert, basically, at NYU, where people of all majors could participate. And I kind of selected all the material. And one of the things I did was, um, and actually I worked on this with Jay Armstrong Johnson, who's also a really good friend of mine for years and now a, a Broadway star um, who I love. And uh, we invited a lot of the people who had material in the show and said, you know, we're students at NYU. We're putting together this like review. Um, would you come talk to us or attend? Um, and it was that way that we got to meet Marvin Hamlish, who spoke to us and who was so lovely. And I'll never so forget So you invited that. him. We invited him. And he came. Okay, and, but like, even that, like, dear Mr. Hamlish, yeah. <laughs> like, were you writing letters to all yeah, these people they or were, emailing? Like, how do you connect? Those were actual letters. And this was like 2006. So I could have written an email, but. But it you're was, so, like, you figured it out. Yeah, I just was like, why not? Like, I'm going to go ask. And honestly, like, the where did that come from? One weird thing is I feel like a lot of it just came from musical theater. I feel like musical theater is filled with, like, these plucky heroines who are like, I'm going to write that letter. And um, I was always just like, I'm going to go do this. Like, why not? And um, one of the people, you know, we invited title of show. Everyone at NYU was very obsessed with that at the time. It had been off Broadway at the Vineyard, which is really close to NYU. And a bunch of us had seen it and loved it so much. And so we wanted to do material from it. We couldn't because it wasn't published yet. But they came to the show anyway to like meet us, which was the kindest thing ever. Um, and we kind of kept in touch. And then a couple months later, Jeff and Hunter were like, we're trying to get the show to go to Broadway. Kevin McCollum, our producer, is trying to get the show to go to Broadway. Um, we're going to do this web series where we're going to like make all these little things um, saying we're going to Broadway and like talking about our journey. Do you want to be our intern? And I was like, oh, my God, of course. So I spent my senior year kind of running around doing things like finding matching T-shirts for Leah, Michelle and Cheyenne Jackson or like helping with some camera work, um, I interned for them. And then when the show was actually going to Broadway at the end of my senior year, Michael Barras, the director, hired me as his assistant. So I got to work at the Lyceum on title of show right after I graduated. So that was kind of my first professional job. And what was interesting was I loved being a director's assistant, but I didn't quite want to be a director. Um, so I learned Why? a lot what, from it. What was that that you saw that you're like, mm, not for me? You know, 
I am so like in admiration of like what a director does and which is everything which is everything and like I've gotten to you know it was it was so weird because like after I did that Michael Greif was looking for an assistant on a show at Second Stage and I got hired to do that which I loved and learned so much from but I was like on this path of like assisting directors when mm-hmm. I didn't want to be one it just you know it's not the way that my brain works I find is like doing a hundred different things at the same time in a way that I don't think ever lends itself to like the way that I think good directors work. Were you Um, less interested in talking to actors about what they were meant to do? I think a weird thing about it to me is that I'm kind of like, oh, there are like six solutions to this problem and none of them are wrong. That's kind of like the way my brain works. And in some ways, I feel like that's not a great way to direct. Like I... It, when I see shows, it's not maybe the best use of time. Totally, right? Or also, like, even when I see shows, and I'm like, I see things in such a like objective way where I'm just like, yeah, that could have made that scene better, but maybe that person likes the way that. Like, I'm so observational sometimes that okay. it just it didn't lend itself in a in a weird way, and I knew that. Um, but I had like a great experience assisting directors for a while, and I knew that I wanted to like work in a producing office and like create history related stuff. So I just started going on that path um, and learned a lot from the directors as well. I. Read another story, and it's not exactly related, um, but it moved me so much, and I want to share it or have you share it, which is you talked about, I think it was Godspell, Mm -hmm. and that Godspell had... Godspell was in Circle in the Square. Mm-hmm. And what was your participation with that show? So I spent three years working for Ken Davenport, who is the lead producer on Godspell. Um, and I was his director of marketing and communications. And so Godspell, I got to work on everything because it was years of making that happen. Okay. So apparently for Godspell, I don't know if it was for standing room SRO people, but there were these pillows. <laughs> Oh right? God, These yeah. Godspell pillows. And so what were the pillows for? Uh, we had the lottery seats and these like little pits on the sides of the stage, which uh, you really got to be right up against the action if you had won that lottery. And they were like clouds on one side and fire on the other, which was integral into the show at one point. They were really cool. So I read that years later when everyone was kind of collecting and dropping off supplies in the New York metropolitan area after Hurricane Sandy, a lot of us were asked to bring like pillows and blankets and, you know, drop them off anywhere that there were these stations where you could bring goods to donate. And that you saw all of these Godspell pillows. Is <laughs> that right? Or did you bring them? I or? did. Well, so I, I thought, oh, we have those Godspell pillows. And they were specifically asking for pillows. As and were you they said. in storage somewhere? Um, they were in our storage. production Yeah. And I got all these pillows and I brought them to the shelter. And I think, you know, they were, it was great. I dropped them off. But I think they were like, what are these weird pillows? Like, and, you know, people at the shelter were sleeping on Broadway pillows, which made me laugh. It makes me <laughs> laugh. But also it just makes me so happy. The idea of like, you know, as Broadway, that the heart and center of it for me is always community, Mm -hmm, right? And how we come together through these stories and they either help us, I don't know, feel better about what's going on in the world or just ask questions about things. And the idea that this prop that was made to help people who got to see the show because they waited for the lottery to kind of work for them and then have those be repurposed in that way. (laughs) I don't know why, but it's really stayed with me. That's Like there's something about it. Like I just picture that moment of like walking by and and just the idea that people were using those pillows in that way. What did Jason Alexander say when he first met (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor? Oh my gosh. Do you remember? This is one of my favorite stories for the book, but um, I think it was like during – 
the first book, it was like my favorite story and I told it a lot. And now it's like not as much in my brain. Maybe I'll have to check out the book. But essentially, he was engaged in this like practical joke with the stage manager that involved, um, you know, him wearing a towel and dropping his towel and like Elizabeth, you do like you do hilarious um and elizabeth taylor came to visit his dress room and and kind of got an eyeful uh so you'll just have to read about it in the book things like he, that he tells it much better than i do well it's his story <laughs> yeah one it's of my stories fa- jason alexander though i always ask everyone if there's a broadway theater they want to work in that they haven't yet and when i interviewed him he talked about how he really wanted to work at the court and a couple of weeks after the book was published he ended up you know doing fish in the dark at the court so i loved that jason so you're alexander. magic <laughs> i Jennifer. guess just secret just secret So tell us about sort of how you think about and curate what's happening in this amazing cabaret space in New York City that I have to say, if you don't live here, when you come to New York, there's all the Broadway and off-Broadway shows you want to see. But then there's this like little hidden gem in the middle of Times Square, below Studio 54, is this magical, magical cabaret space where you're suddenly like one foot away (laughs) from Alice Ripley or Anthony Rapp or, or Laura Benanti or anyone amazing. What is that? Tell me the world of that place. Sure. Uh, so I'm the creative and programming director. Yeah, you are. Uh, yeah. Uh, essentially, you know, we do 16 to 18 shows every week. So there's never a dull moment. Um, and a lot of it is Broadway stars doing solo concerts or people who are emerging artists doing solo concerts. And then a lot of it's like musicals in concert, both old musicals and new musicals and underappreciated musicals and hits and um, celebrating songwriters and evenings where Broadway casts will come and do a show together. There's just all these different kinds of programming that I, I get to do. Um I've been there for about four years, and it's such an exciting way to kind of integrate a lot of the producing brain I have with the history brain. You know, last week we did this Legs Diamond reunion concert, which, you know, when we do something like that, where all these cast members who did the show in the 80s, you know, 30 years later are coming back together, um, and it's just such an exciting thing we get to do. And it's taken me these years to kind of get enough momentum where I can do all these different kinds of programming. Like last summer we did, like, new musical theater writers in concert, like a whole series of them. And when I first started out, the club was doing a lot of headliners. It was mostly, you know, really amazing people that we still are so lucky to have, like Patti Lapone and Ben Vereen. Um, and when I came on, it was, how do we diversify this and let's have all different kinds of artists? And we realized we needed to do a certain volume of shows every week to, to make it successful. Um, so it became my job to kind of expand everything. And at this point, you know, we have up until July scheduled. So it's really become a thing um, where I've been able to plan in advance and make these really unique shows happen. I get the 54 below part, but it's also called... Oh, Feinstein's. Yes. Sure. So what is so? Who was Michael Feinstein? Why is his name on this theater? And what is the relationship? Yeah. Um, Michael Feinstein uh, is an incredible artist, uh, concert artist, and recording artist. And he had a venue in New York for many years, and it closed. And then a couple years ago, we were already open as Fifty Four Below, and Michael was looking to get involved with the venue. And so we formed a partnership with him, where he plays about six weeks a year at the venue. And so we combined the name, so he's kind of in residence um, at the venue. Uh, And other than that, you know, he what's one of my favorite things that lends itself to the industry community thing we've been talking about is Michael will just drop in to see other artists, especially like younger artists. And that happens all the time at the venue, which is like. Can you imagine like that? Like if you're just sitting there, you're like, I'm sorry, is that Michael? That is Michael Feinstein. He just walked in. Yeah, it's a lot of that. Um, Michael's done that with a lot of artists who've been just so honored that he's been there. Um, And also, you know, I remember like we were doing a Joey Connison family show when Lea Salongo was also at 54 Below and she came with her whole family 
family to like see it. So there's all of these instances of like, you know, I remember like Patti Lapone and Jeremy Jordan played the same week at one point and they were like slipping each other notes um, because they were about to do a Law and Order episode together. So there's all these like little <laughs> moments of community that happen because there's three shows in one night. Um, Andre DeShields was telling me like a while ago about a, a cabaret venue he played in the 70s and how it was that's what it was like, how it was just like you would do a show and then an hour later someone else, an hour later someone else. And that's one of my favorite things about our venue is that like you get this volume of shows that creates a community of artists. So you just mentioned Joe Iconis. And when Will Rowland was on the show, he talked about the importance of Joe Iconis at the beginning of his career. And he also talked about you in the middle of it. He's like, that's when Jen Tepper got this job. <laughs> so obviously there's a long standing history and relationship between you, Joe Iconis, Will Rowland. And others. Tell me about the three of you. Yeah. Um, and why do you go so way back and how did you find each other? So Joe has this like incredible sensibility. He's a musical theater writer who's written shows and also does as a cabaret artist. Um, and he just like from the first moment I met him, which was in like 2008, he kind of had this dream of like his arsenal of people being like a Steppenwolf of musical theater where he has this family, which, you know, a lot of musical theater writers, it's like so and so and friends. And you're like, OK, great. Great. I'm seeing a group of people perform your songs, but you might not have ever, you know, worked with them before this concert, which is wonderful and has a place. But Joe has created kind of this group where we've all grown together and done multiple shows together and done all these concerts and like have created this artistic sensibility over the years. And I remember like Joe and I going to see Will at NYU in a production of Bat Boy and being like, that guy's amazing. And like, we want to work with him and he's going to graduate soon. And we all go way back um, because of NYU partially. A lot of us went there, um, but also like new people come into the family all the time as Joe does different musicals and then we're like oh this wonderful person is part of the fold now uh, so we've all done this Christmas show together and uh, you know we have all these times where we get to like reunite either for concerts or things like that while at the same time people will go off and do a musical either on Broadway or regionally or somewhere else but we all still come back together um, artistically which is really fulfilling and wonderful well that's incredible to kind of have that and to know, like, no matter what's happening, every December we're going to come back together and do this thing. Does the show change or is it the same show? It does change. And it's always funny tracking the changes now that we've done it for 10 years. Um, and part of that is, you know, as when I started, I saw the first annual. I was not friends with everyone yet. I was like a fan. And I actually met Joe because I just loved his musical so much. And, you know, I met him and then I asked the producer of a show he was working on if I could assist her because I just loved his stuff so much. And that's how we kind of started working together. Um, but the Christmas show, the first year I saw it, the second year I produced it, and there were maybe like 15 people in it. And I would say this year there's like 70. So it's changed over the years in that you're like, oh, Cindy Lou Who is in the show now. Oh, like, you know this crazy Christmas characters in the show uh, because we've gotten more people so he's integrated that. Um, one also really fun thing is like people will um, you know have a job and be out of town one year so someone else has to play that part so the role changes and that's kind of like a fun way that Christmas has evolved over the years like Taylor Trench has always been in the show but like he one year will play a part and next year will be doing a show and then the next year he'll have to play a different part because someone's taken it so it's it's always like an evolution of that. So when was the moment for you where you realized I went from being this girl in Florida, lying on my bed, reading the liner notes, listening to cast albums, to being in the middle of it. And by the way, I'm sure fangirl and professional <laughs> are go hand in hand always for all of us because we grew up like we needed this, right? Yeah. This was our medicine. And now we're, we're in the middle of all of it. But do you have a moment or a moment that you can share where you're like, I'm... Um, 
I'm here. Yeah. I'm at the table. Well, that's like, I love this so much about what you do and what people in our industry do that are able to be professionals and also be fans and stay really excited about it the way that they were when they were first starting out in that way. Um, I, it was working on title of show because the gang on title of show was like, they were the ultimate professionals that were also fans and they were so grateful for every moment of that process. They really taught me a lot about, you know, Hunter and Jeff would be like, oh my God, like we're, you know, going to this opening. It's amazing. And we met Bernadette Peters and they have this like really big excitement about all this Broadway stuff. And at the same time, like we were about to do a show on Broadway ourselves. So that really was the first time that I was like, I am here and I'm doing it. And there's also a way for me to not lose that like fangirlness because I don't think that they have. That was very inspiring to me. So what are your dreams for yourself? Where do you see yourself? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, what's one weird thing I think about is like, right, my job right now is very much like my dream job. And it didn't exist five years ago because 54 Below didn't exist. So in that way, I think like I've tried to stay open to different things that might come up. Like I, I'm so passionate about integrating theater history with like what's currently happening in theater and producing types of things. Um, I've been on the Encores Off Center Artist Board for a couple years. And like one of my dreams at some point is to have like a bigger role at Encores. Um, I'm so obsessed with what they do. And, and I think that they're just doing such a remarkable thing and bringing like musicals back. And I love the Off Center program. So things like that where, you know, I I love what they do. And it's like maybe at some point there'll be an opportunity for me to be more involved there. Right. Or, you know, I love new musicals so much. And I love the, you know, Joe's work and the work of other musical theater writers that are writing now. Um, so I could see like going in any number of directions. Right. Um, and what's really one of my favorite things about writing the books and 54 Below is I get to just like work with so many artists. Like when you're working on a show eight times a week, there's something so lovely and beautiful about that. But the way that we get to have kind of a revolving door, we're like last night it's Emily Skinner and Alice Ripley. And then the next night, it's Matt Doyle. And you kind of get to have all these, like, mini collaborations um, that I find very fulfilling and hope that, you know, I get to continue doing something like that. So tell me, if you can, what does Broadway mean to you? Broadway to me... It's so funny because, like, it it means, like, a street, <laughs> you know? Like, to me, I'm like, oh, Broadway. Like, the physical, the theaters are surrounding this magical street. To me, it just, it means this community. I think that, like, the art form is so magical and the community is so wonderful and it's they feed each other in a beautiful way so it means all of that to me well i am just so grateful to you for curating in such an amazing way both performances that we can all go see and a history and a future of this um art form that can be shared now because of your books with everyone all over the world in such a unique way. And you're such a gifted writer and your passion is um, infectious and contagious. And uh, thank you for telling the story of Broadway. It's extraordinary. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my honor. Oh, so the books are called The Untold Stories of Broadway, and you can get them in most theater bookstores and regular bookstores and on Amazon, right? Totally. All right. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com.
I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.